the Centre Steer Podcast, a podcast by, for and about Land Rover owners. Welcome to the Center Steer Podcast, podcast number 131 for February of 2024. Center Steer is a monthly podcast for Land Rover enthusiasts, hobbyists, and owners around the world. For this podcast, we talk with Hesp Automotive, Alistair Hesp and Jerry Starr. Alistair lives in British Columbia and has been working on Land Rovers for decades. He has owned a number of Rovers over the years, including a lightweight, a 1971 2A, and a 1994 NAS Defender 110. Most recently, he added a new Defender 130 outbound to his garage. He heard about it here on this very podcast, and he he looked it up and ended up purchasing one. He's passionate about keeping Land Rovers running and getting folks behind the steering wheel of one. Embracing the future, he has begun converting series and classic Defenders to electric. I'm your host, John Costage, and joining me this evening are my fellow owners and enthusiasts, Harold, Morgan, and Dixon. Welcome. Hey, good evening. How's it going? Has your audio unstuck, Morgan? I don't know. Has it? <laughs> yes, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Excellent. We had some audio and video <laughs> issues with Morgan earlier. He's, he's doing well. And welcome back, Dixon. I hope uh, you'll give us a, a little report on the winter romp in a few minutes. We will see. <laughs> That's it. Stay tuned. <laughs> have, you, have you thought out yet? <laughs> Our latest buy me a tea is from Bob Steele. Bob says, did I say you can never have enough Dick Dimbleby? Am I dreaming? Thank you for bringing him back for more. To hear Nick enunciate 8274 would make the marketing crew at Warren proud. Nick's body of work and his love of Land Rover are something we should all aspire. Well done. Brown water all around. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Baron Brownwater rides again. And it was absolutely our pleasure to have Nick Dibbley on the show. Yeah, regardless of what you may think, we had fun. Yes. <laughs> and report of Freelander sightings in Barbados. Our listener and frequent contact down there is Alex, and he says, Hi, John, Morgan, Harold, Dixon, and the rest of the team. I see about three to five Freelanders, Series 1s and Series 2s. Every day in Barbados, there are quite a few around still, and they are going strong. I've attached a few pics to brighten your day. I've decided to start taking these as you seem very deprived of on-the-road Freelander action over there in the USA. I'm pretty sure if you wanted one badly enough, there would be someone here who would love to sell you theirs, perhaps to add to your growing collection. Let me know if you want to, me to send more photos. Enjoy. Best regards. Keep up all the good work. Alex. So there are people in Barbados that have these Freelanders and they want rid of them, John. <laughs> I think Alex is trying to get rid of them. I think they, they're doing fine in Barbados. I think they should stay there and prop up the uh, Barbados Land Rover. So community. apparently the five remaining Freelanders that still run are in Barbados. <laughs> it's potentially a, an angle for tourism, just like Cuba and all those old 50s American cars, Barbados and Freelanders. Yeah, but unlike the Cuba with all the 50s cars, you can't go and just bring some parts <laughs> to Barbados <laughs> to help keep them running because there are no parts out there. They, the Cuba didn't have the right parts. They just they put Chinese diesels in their old 50s cars. Or Peugeot diesels. Or whatever they could get their mix yeah. on. See, I exactly. wonder if the same thing didn't happen to those Freelanders. And the reason they're still there is because they got different engines than we got here in North America. Oh, that's a guarantee. And also, David Short, friend of the podcast, was traveling for work in Nairobi, Kenya. 
And he emailed me a couple times with some photos. First one was, so far, the only legacy Land Rovers I have seen are old Defenders converted to tow trucks. Supposedly, this is the truck of choice for towing. I have not seen them used for anything else yet. <laughs> I've only been here for two days so far. Then he followed that up with, shot out the window of the car he was in while moving down the highway. No idea what's going on here, but assume a junkyard or spare parts. And there was a picture of Range Rover Classics, Defenders, series trucks. There had to be about a dozen of them just there on the side of the road. It looks like some of the windows were missing. So definitely a spare parts junkyard area. Or a used car lot. (laughs) (laughs) Impressive that their Defenders are being used as tow trucks, though. Yeah, isn't that kind of like karma coming around? After having been towed so many times, they they become tow trucks? (laughs) (laughs) And this was the... Proper tow truck of the old days with the hook on the, on the oh, back. Yeah. Yeah, old yeah. school. Thanks to Alex and Bob and to David for messaging us. Good to hear what's going on out in the world. And now it's time for the North American events calendar with Dixon. <laughs> Let's see. Well, starting in March, we have several events that are going to be uh, lining up, though no date yet. Ottawa Valley will be having their maple syrup rally. It's traditionally at the end of March, beginning of April, at the height of the maple syrup run. But this year, looking at the calendar, especially when we're recording it, I think the sap run is going to be a little early this year. I I think you mean looking at the weather. Looking at the weather, yes. Yeah, I heard it was quite warm in Quebec the last few days. Oh, it went from minus 15 Celsius, and it's going to be up in the, the 40s Fahrenheit this week. As the highs, so below. Free- well, that's better uh, than the other way, being going from oops. minus fifteen Fahrenheit to plus forty Celsius. Sorry about that. The headset just died. You sound better. Oh, okay. The next event of note is going to be Rove at Wintergreen. That's on April eighteenth to twenty-first. It's their first rally of the season at the Wintergreen Ski Resort in Central Virginia. They're going to be work weekends ahead and so on. Check out their website and Facebook for more information on that one. Moving on, April 26th, 28th is the Joe Lucas Not a Rally. It's the 30th anniversary one out in California. The Mendo Recce Social Group, it's a mailing list that's been going on for over 30 years, runs this event. It's a bring your own everything event. Free on-site camping. There's porta potties. It's similar to the the winter romp in the sense that you're on your own. After that, early May, the Rovers Club Spring Robesonia Trials, RTV trials, and so on. For those that are interested in that kind of thing, it's a technical trials course similar to what Anarch is promoting at all of the three events that will you'll be hearing about later this month. And okay, Robesonia, Pennsylvania. The first April rally is going to be the Southern California Rover Club rally on or around April 4th to April 7th. Save the date. More information will be coming on about this one. It'll be taking place in the Desert State Park in the southern part of the state. (laughs) Two names we can't have trouble. (laughs) Anza Borrego, I think. Desert State Park. (laughs) So it looks like it. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. In early May, the Northern California Land Rover Club will be having their annual overland rally from Saturday, May 11th to Sunday, May 19th. 
That's a long one up in the Oregon backcountry discovery route. It's an annual overland. It's a week-long trip, one of their signature annual events. The trip is going to be limited to 14 trucks, and registration is their webpage and Facebook group for more information. If it's not already full and you're interested in going, time to jump on that one. Spring Uhari in North Carolina, put on by CROC, the Carolina Rovers Owners Club. It is going to be on May 9th to 12th. Their event information is now up on Facebook and Eventbrite. They're looking forward to lots of people showing up for that one. And the last one for the month is going to be the PCRC Rally, Pacific Coast Rover Club. They will be holding a, hosting a rally at the end of May 24th to May 27th in Redmond, Oregon. This rally is supported by ANARC, the Association of North American Rover Clubs. And that is a roundup for the next three months worth of rallies around North America. And you, you can check what Dixon has just discussed out on ANARC's club events page. And speaking of NR Club events, for 2024, there's going to be three NR Club events. You've probably heard us talk about them. We are going to have a special podcast in a few weeks or middle of the month, depending on when you listen to this particular podcast, to properly, formally, and officially announce the three NR Club events, which uh, are, to remind you, is the PCRC event that will be taking place in May 24th through 27th, and then the North Star Rover Rally, which is the, the new name of the Minnesota Land Rover Club's event. That will take place at the beginning of August, and then the Gulf Coast Land Rover Club is holding an event tentatively. I think the date might slide, but it is in late October. Again, we'll have full details when we have the announcement coming up later. And if you're interested in the meantime, going to anarch.club, get you all of the various club events and so on that are listed out with links to where you might be able to find these things. Another location, if you get a hold of a copy of it, is the Ottawa Valley Newsletter, which also lists out all of these events and links to them. And how does one get a copy of the OVLR newsletter, Dixon? If you're a member of the club, you'll get it automatically. If you send us an email, we will send you a copy of it if you're that curious. And we'll have a link for that in the show notes. But what is the email that one would use? I would just use Center Steer. You go ahead and email us, Center Steer messages at centersteer.com. We'll forward those back over to Dixon. Dixon, give us a little recap of the main winter romp. It was interesting. Let's see where to start. One indicator is in 2022, there was about 120-something vehicles at Winter Romp. Last year, there was 165 thereabouts, and this year, 207 vehicles registered for the, the Winter Romp. It's a, an event that is growing. It's a, a free event. You're on your own there. There are miles and miles of trails this year. The trails were icy. If you didn't have chains, you were going to be having an interesting time out there. I, I heard uh, and saw the pictures. Lots of damage. Lots of trees being very helpful. Oh, yes. There was a new Defender that slid down into the Pit of Despair and took out its uh, front left light cluster. That's going to be an expensive little repair. 
And if you are that person or know someone who may need some new Defender parts, if you listen later in the podcast, we know someone who has some new Defenders that might be uh, available for parting out. Oh, it was an interesting rally this year. Every year the conditions are different with the weather this year, the conditions change through the day. It is very challenging for people to go and do the trails. And there's all sorts of differing levels from easy stuff to gate, sunlight gateway and so on that no one managed to get up this year. Mm. Wow! It's a phenomenal event. What would you say was the distribution of vehicles? Was it, were there more new defenders than typical series trucks, the classic defenders? The majority seemed to be in the Defenders range. There were more new Defenders there this year than last, though not that many. There were a pair of Grenadiers there going about, doing quite well, as well as the usual assortment of series vehicles and such like that. They've limited to the number of off-brand vehicles down to 10 now because of the numbers have grown so much. Yeah, there's one guy that always brings a Jeep, as I recall. Oh, yes, he's one of the... That would be Paul, who does a tremendous amount of work on maintaining the trails and, and expanding the trail network. It's an event with it's all volunteer run. It is very well done by Bruce Fowler. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, that, that number of vehicles is just mind-boggling for an event that is organized in that way, all volunteer. It's great that the property has been preserved at this point and the access has been preserved but so much work goes into it but add to that it's in the middle of february and it's up in maine yeah and it rivals the largest events in north america for land (laughs) it it takes something just to get there let alone be actually at the event and then go ahead and off-road and can be challenging well that may, may be one of the reasons that the number of defenders is growing because they're just a little more comfortable and a slightly warmer in the main winters than the series he, he vehicles that started steering with. wheels <laughs> oh yeah i always look at it you have to get out of your vehicle anyway so the fact that your series vehicle has an inadequate heater really doesn't matter just leave it off and stay in your parka and heavy boots yeah you're better off like getting up and walking around to keep yourself warm anyway get the blood flowing the series trucks are are pretty high effort so you can work up a good sweat just trying to steer them through the woods that's true no, no power steering all manual steering yep it is interesting that, though in the yeah, sense gearbox that going warm too it's interesting because the series vehicles are are light and 80 inches under three thousand pounds and then you get the range rovers in there that are at eight thousand pounds computers can only help so much against weight what did you drive mm-hmm. dixon I was in a bunch of different vehicles and so on. Oh, I wasn't didn't... going to go and put mine through the salt across southern Quebec. Gotcha. Do I you was have... supposed to be driving Timbits, the Bruce's Series 1, but it had an oil leak. Any standout vehicles you rode in? Actually, the new Trek Defender 110 is quite a well-kitted-out vehicle. I rode with the dealership from, I forget the name of it, it's the Boston dealership. They were up there with a Trek Defender and had a great chat with Igor, their service manager, and so on about the vehicles and speaking of winter rum john i hear you've got a spy photo of me in the back of a (laughs) disco one yes we have we have people everywhere you you can't uh, go to an event without us knowing about it dixon yes we've got a spy photo thanks to uh, joe mcdonough mcdonough who but he has a photo of you in the back it looks like a d1 
Seventh yep. seat, or is it a D2? D2, yep. that's, the, that's the raffle disco. For oh. the past couple of years at Winter Romp, to support Habitat for Humanity, they sell off raffle tickets, and someone wins a vehicle. And that was the raffle vehicle for this year. And we were in the uh, process of driving out when the picture was taken. I, I will note that a Land Rover product with street tires is significantly challenged when it gets to going on those icy trails. I want to know what Joe won for sending in the Dixon sighting. Oh, I'll send him a t-shirt. How about that? Joe, send me your address. I'll send you a t-shirt. Thanks very much, Dixon, for letting us know what happened there at the romp. If you're interested in going to the romp next year, start planning now because... Usually the hotels fill up pretty quickly. Winterromp.me registration database and such for 2025 is all set up and running. And it's always President's Day weekend, correct? That is correct. All right, let's get on to the news then, shall we? First up, outstanding JLR financial results amid best quarterly profit figures for years. JLR has hailed outstanding financial results as they announced the figures for the three months to December 31st of 2023, which is the their quarter three of their fiscal year, 24, whatever. But JLR said it increased wholesales to fulfill more client orders in the third quarter. Revenue and profit were, the firm said, very robust. And JLR, whose headquarters, of course, in Coventry, is on track to hit profitability and cash flow targets. CEO Mardell was very positive about the, the latest results and said, quote, sales of our modern luxury vehicles hit new records in the quarter And we are excited about the strong client interest in our soon-to-launch Range Rover Electric. He went on to say, we have delivered further outstanding financial performance in the three quarters with our best quarterly profit for seven years and our highest ever revenue for the first nine months of a physical year. Sales of our modern luxury vehicles at new records and with the upcoming launch of the electric. The firm went on to say revenue for the quarter was $7.4 billion pounds (laughs) up 22% versus the same quarter of uh, fiscal year 23 and up 8% versus quarter two of their fiscal year 24 revenues for the first nine months that ended in December were 21.1 billion pounds. I'm going to read that again. Revenue for the nine months that ended at the end of December were 21 billion pounds. JLR's highest ever revenue generation in the first nine months of a fiscal year, up 35% compared to the prior year. JLR went on to say profit before tax and and exceptional items in the quarter was 627 million, up from 265 million a year ago. And that was a very good quarter for JLR. We like to see it. Yeah. Big numbers. You sure they're not using Monopoly money? Yeah, I had to read that 21 billion twice. That's just, that's like, 21 billion, 21 billion. I'm, I'm now highlighting it for you guys on the screen. So you can see that I, that's what it says here. 21 billion pounds. They brought it in nine months. Fascinating how the, the revenues and so on just yo-yo with this company over the years. Certainly these improvements are sort of part of the moving further and further upscale, but also such a small company, right? Any mistake can really hurt. Small company um, bringing in twenty-one and any success billion pounds. Can be really great, right? But if a slight adjustment in the other direction, and suddenly they're losing eight billion pounds, yeah. 
which, right. which they have, yeah. come, have done. Yes. All right. Moving on to JLR parts crisis, mostly resolved as supply improves. Mardell also said during that uh, financial discussion that they had begun to resolve the parts backlog caused by delays in its new logistics hub but has cautioned it will take time for dealers to be able to repair all the cars affected. The problems arose when the company reconfigured its UK parts supply network from 18 warehouses to one super center run by part logistics in Leicestershire. So this was all UK related, but of course it has impacted other parts of the world too with uh, the supply parts to repair vehicles. But at last October, a car dealer magazine reported 10,000 cars were off the road awaiting parts due to delays. And in November, Marnell, Mardell acknowledged a backlog of around 5,000 critical parts. Speaking during JLR's third quarter financial results, Mardell said that the backlog had been reduced to fewer than 2,000 parts by the end of January. But he said it will take some time to resolve. Quote, these parts need to be put into vehicles, so the challenge is moved towards dealer availability and capability to fix vehicles. He said that's going to take a bit more time, but the original bottleneck is actually mostly through. It's not where we want to get to, but it's mostly through. Mardell added that JLR has added 1,000 new courtesy vehicles to its network. So if you don't get your fix as quick as you want, at least you will have the option of going into a JLR product, unquote. He admitted that delays have meant, quote, too many of our customers had to go into non-brand vehicles, unquote. That's great until those courtesy vehicles need parts. <laughs> yes. <that's laughs> right. Oh, ouch, ouch. That's right. It's uh, one of those things where one mega facility sounds like a great idea, but if you don't get it right, uh, you got a big problem. It's great in terms of efficiency, but especially, you know, logistical efficiency, pulling everything out of the same place, but it opens you up. It makes you vulnerable to a problem at that one facility. Yep. Single point of failure is always rough. Exactly right. And they probably had a problem getting it transitioned over to the new one facility. That sounds like it was a growing pains situation. Let's hope they have lots of backup power and backup networks and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no ransomware attack. Uh, yeah, good <laughs> problems, data security please. and yeah, all that kind of stuff. It will happen. It's a matter of when. Moving on yep. to JLR boss Martell also said that urgent national conversation about organized vehicle crime, calling on the government to, this is the UK government, to invest further to crack down on gangs, even if that comes instead of tax cuts. Concerns about the high theft of Range Rover vehicles has led to reports from owners of a sharp increase in insurance rates. Asked about the issue during the third quarter financial results, Mardell launched a passionate defense of the safety of his firm's car, saying data suggesting a high theft rate of Range Rover and Defender models has been exaggerated due to misreported data. Mardell acknowledged that organized vehicle crime was a serious issue in this country that was landing heavily on all manufacturers, including JLR. But he insisted that most of the reports on the high theft rate of JLR vehicles was based on old or incomplete data, that had been misinterpreted. Citing the latest full year of DVLA statistics for 2023, Mardell said, contrary to a widely repeated myth, the Range Rover does not feature in the top 10 vehicles in the UK stolen for calendar year 23. It is not Britain's most stolen vehicle. There are no JLR models in the top three stolen vehicles in calendar year 23. The vehicle theft figures for 2023 show the Ford Festiva was the UK's most stolen car ahead of the Focus. The Range Rover Sport was fifth, the Range Rover Evoque was sixth, and the Discovery Sport was tenth. 
Those numbers cover all cars on the road, regardless of age. Mardell noted the DVLA data shows a 27.2% year-on-year decline in Range Rover theft and a 28.6% decline in Range Rover sport theft. He also cited data showing minimal thefts of the latest Range Rover and Defender models. Quote, For the Defender, since launch in 2019, only 130 cars have been stolen out of 45,200 vehicles, a rate of 0.3. The Police National Computer shows only 0.08% of new Range Rovers, just 11 vehicles out of 12,800 vehicles, which have been passed over to clients since launch two years ago, have been stolen. It's 15 for the new Range Rover Sport. I'm not sure which other brand could actually claim such a high level of security and a low level of theft, unquote. Mardell went on to say the figures meant there is no reason whatsoever why any insurance company should not gladly and readily insure those new vehicles. Zero reason in any part of this country. There's your passionate defense. (laughs) Yeah, aside from the police needing at least another, a second national computer, Maybe if they want to fight the organized vehicle crime, they should not be promoting the Range Rovers and Defenders as the Bond villain vehicles. <laughs> I also find it interesting that he's launching an impassioned plea or trying to manipulate statistics when on the other side of the table, you've got these actuaries in charge of the insurance companies who I guess are known for just making up numbers that have sent the insurance rates so high for these things. He says they're not getting stolen. It's hard to steal something that's broken and waiting for parts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This article goes on to talk about how uh, Land Rover's also helping at the border because apparently a number of the new Defenders and the Range Rovers are being put into containers and then shipped overseas. And I guess they're being stolen and then taken out of the country. So they're trying to help with that part of it too. Oh, it's certainly happening up here. They get stolen in Ottawa. They race, they use kids because they don't get as much sanctioned when they get, if they get caught, but they just go as fast as they can down to the port of Montreal. They get driven into a container and they end up in Dubai or the Middle East or Africa. Yeah, that happened recently in, I saw the article, was it in Wisconsin or something? Like five younger looking folks broke into a dealership, stole half a million dollars worth of uh, Land Rovers. Yeah. Uh, you might have seen the trailer for Gone in 60 Seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from that, if you wondered what happened to Land Rover's old design chief, Massimo Frisella, starting June 1, he will oversee the styling of all new models in the Audi lineup, including upcoming electric vehicles. Massimo was the architect behind the Defender, Discovery, Velar, and Range Rover. So I thought we closed the loop there. Yeah, interesting. It'll. I wonder if he'll be focusing more on Audi SUVs or whether he secretly had a design yes. interest in doing Jaguar and now gets to do some of the, you can, the Audi coupes. I believe that's the, you can pick that up on the Audi podcast. Probably. Yeah, yeah the real question is going forward, are all the infotainment systems on Audi is going to suck? <laughs> Actually, Harold, that's not true anymore. And there's some, and that comes up on some stuff later down the road uh, we'll, we'll, when we get to Ooh, the review. teaser alert. Yes, a teaser, a teaser. All right, moving on to <laughs> this one. Land Rover says it won't go bigger than 23 inches. JLR's vehicle engineering director, Matt Becker, made the statement in an interview with Car Throttle after being asked if customers can expect 24-inch carbon fiber wheel options anytime soon. Quote, you won't want to go bigger than that. 
I don't see many 24-inch wheels. 23 seems to be about the limit. Yeah, because 23 to 24 is a big jump. Yeah, and these are for the carbon fiber rims specific or wheels specifically, right? Yeah, yeah, which um, are great off-road. Let me continue on with this and then we'll, <laughs> we'll pick this up. Becker provided insight into the current 23-inch carbon fiber option for the Range Rover Sport SV. In the U.S., the 23-inch gloss dark tint carbon fiber wheels. Are you sitting down? $10,150 as an optional extra, <laughs> but they come standard. Per wheel? <laughs> I'm not sure. If you opt for the carbon bronze theme, which also adds carbon ceramic brakes and a host of exterior and interior design features. I believe it's for the set. Despite the cost, demand for these wheels is extremely high. So this goes on to talk about the benefit of ordering carbon fiber wheels is a decrease in unsprung weight. These wheels save 20 pounds per corner and are more resistant to the heat from the brakes. Land Rover also says the wheels improve handling and ride quality, which means they're a must. If you intend to spark your go faster SUV regularly, if you opt for the carbon ceramic brakes, you will add an additional 75 pounds. That's in weight, not money. But when it comes to wheels, bigger is not always better. A 24-inch wheel leaves little room for a tire with a decent side profile, impacting ride quality and grip. Bigger wheels also take up more space and cost more to manufacture. So while larger wheels are always possible, they're not always prudent, especially if they're made of carbon fiber. I wanted to at least cover the ins and outs there. Yeah. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, just wait till you get curb rash on those yeah. $10,000 rims. But then yeah, again, and you can't straighten why... them. You can't fix them like you can aluminum <laughs> or steel. Steel, you can bend it straight again. Aluminum, you can do some things to add some metal back. But carbon, you throw them away. Exactly. And I can't imagine hitting a pothole in winter and having the whole thing just explode. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I understand the Dixon, you're taking uh, one of these SV Velars up to the winter romp next year. Is that right? I would. <laughs> Greatly enjoy taking one of these if they want to go and spot me one to to try it out yeah. on the winter farm trails. It would be <laughs> fascinating to see how that would what the ride would be like. The tire they just basically brush some rubber on the outside of the wheel. Any enterprising Bond villain out there, get in touch with Dixon and get your vehicle up to the romp. I don't know how it will like going through the icebergs, but okay. Next up, JLR electric car rollout slows as plug-in hybrids surge. Despite all the hype around electric vehicles, JLR is now having to adjust its ambitions as demand for such vehicles cools, according to a report by Automotive News Europe. Mardell said JLR is now working hard to make sure plug-in hybrids, PHEVs, more reliable across its lineup while development timelines for the electric models are being extended. In 2021, JLR said it aimed to launch six electric Land Rover models by 2026, it now says it plans to launch only four plus a couple of electric Jags. Last year, JLR reportedly experienced the biggest increase in any car maker in PHEV sales across Europe. The British Marks PHEV sales soared by 68% in 23 compared with the year before, totaling 45,224 sales, according to Automotive News. JLR says the waiting list for the Range Rover Electric that's the full electric one, is already at 16000 before prices have even been released. JLR CFO Richard Molino reportedly said the new model's price would be high enough to retain the company's improved profit margins. Apart from the aforementioned Range Rover Electric, JLR is also reportedly planning an electric Range Rover Sport 
that will share the MLA architecture. The company's next Range Rover, Evoque, and Velar, and the Disco Sport are expected to use the upcoming electrified modular architectural EMA, which will be for EVs only. Finally, the brand has previously confirmed it aims to move away completely from internal combustion engines by 2039. Ooh, a lot of info there. I think it's a good yeah, move. Yeah, it, it is, definitely. And, and it feels like Land Rover has the most room for improvement on PHEVs because they just haven't had a whole lot of hybrid models until recently. Hey, now they got so. the cash. <laughs> they can put into them <laughs> but yeah they've got the cash but also they can at this point get away with pretty mild hybrid implementations whereas many years ago a hybrid was usually not a mild hybrid and was a much more involved product also they're going to see the biggest improvement in fuel economy because they all have very large suvs that usually had pretty poor mileage so they'll see that that delta for them i think will be better than others on the whole electric i i think it's there's so many aspects right now that are causing the uptake for electric vehicles to slow what's hard to build batteries and source batteries which is also a problem for jlr for sure it's hard for them to source windows or windshields <laughs> Exactly. You know, let alone a slew of articles up here on how poorly pure electric vehicles have been performing in the winter. Yeah, they're yeah they're not good in the cold. Right, and beyond that, because that's we have a similar problem here in northern New England, but also the we're having trouble getting scaling the grid for it and the chargers and keeping maintenance on those chargers and all. There's just so many problems yeah. and it's really growing pains. Yep. All right. Let's move on from the business, strict business news to model information. This extremely rare Land Rover Defender is a work of art. First of all, the Defender's a work of art, period. Then these folks, the Dutch company Firmship, must be best known for its yachts and boats, but its design team has recently taken a spin on a different form of transport. They're looking to the land rather than the water. They've partnered with Land Rover with the Defender a with an all-black and white look. Pays homage to nautical styling, but with a modern and minimalist edge. Firmship worked with studio designer Job Smeets on the Defender, giving the car a tough lacquered exterior to handle any conditions and which has distinctive texture of its own, similar to the lacquer found on construction equipment or public phone boxes. In other words, it's built to be tough, but the interior has the comfy luxury you'd expect from a modern car done in a palette of pale gray with soft furnishings like the seats and steering wheel. With just 25 of these being made according to Firmship and no price yet announced, but sure to be considerably pricier than regular Defender. But it isn't likely that you'll be able to get your hands on one or see one in the wild, but you can take pleasure in the gorgeous images. And, and they are gorgeous images, although yeah. some of them, hang on, yeah, I, I, I'm I with know. you. The, They're making 25. I think they'd be hard for us to find more than people that would want to pay for it. Even if you pay for it, what are you going to, are you going to take it out? Are you actually No, going, I mean, you, you can, I wouldn't be able to touch it. I'd get it filthy. Yeah. Probably. Maybe that's why they call it art, an art car because I like, I'd have fingerprint art oh, on yeah. that thing. But it does have that textured, textured surface, which is pretty cool. 
Well, that's yeah, got to help with the arrow drag <laughs> <laughs> and keeping it clean. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, Although I think I we mean, all and, agree. And, the one thing that's hideous are these wheels, these wheels. No. Yeah. And we're a fan of the steelies, but these just, they, and I even like white steelies in certain applications, but white on white no. just seems a bit much. They should have used white rubber and just gone for it. You know, yeah. made the tires white. I, yep. I also, I, I think the holes yeah. are too small. I, I just see that's what I feel like it's it makes it feel more I guess that minimalist and, and small yeah I don't know I can live with the whole pattern that's yeah. that reminds me a lot of NATO wheels yeah, the center hub seems wide holes, yeah they look like an oversized space saver donut rim <laughs> yes yeah it is something about the, <laughs> the, the ratio rubber. of rubber to, to rim yes. on that with that design the interior looks good, though. I do like those seats. I like the seats with the leather outside, and then this seating surface has that VLAR, or not VLAR. <laughs> that, <laughs> I guess it is. It, what's the suede? Like suede? Velour. Yes, like velour. Yeah, there we go. It has that velour feel to it. I, I, mean, I would be okay with it. It's just, it's too light. I would get it filthy in a hurry. It would look great on the deck of a yacht. Which is what they're going for. Can you imagine taking that in the woods and getting it muddy? I couldn't imagine going to Home Depot in that. Yeah, let, let alone the uh, North Star Rally in that's, northern Minnesota with that true. bright red, iron-rich mud. <laughs> I still haven't gotten off the side of my truck. Ooh, ooh. Also it, white. It stains yeah, the white paint gray. on my truck. Yeah. Yeah. Wes, but do you have the textured lacquer, Harold? That's the question. See, yeah, to hold the mud point. in tighter. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 2024 Land Rover Defender 130 Outbound. This is a test from Rodentrack. They start out with the new Outbound model debuts for the 2024 model year. Not only did Land Rover conceal the rearmost windows with exterior plastic covers, but also ditched the third row. That might sound strange because the outbound variant is available only in the Defender 130 body style, an extra long 17.6 footer that, ha that was created specifically to make room for a third row. As we previously learned during our time with the first edition, there's just one problem, little space inside to haul anything else when you're using all the seats. That's what led Land Rover to introduce the outbound, which solves the storage shortage with 36 cubic feet behind the second row bench and 76 cubes with it stowed. Compared with the three row Defender 130, we could fit one more carry-on suitcase, 19 total, behind the outbound's rear seats. It can hold 36 with the rear seats folded and a six bag advantage. There's a lot more for you to read about the Outbound, I'll go to the bottom here about this kind of summation and cost. The outbound starts at $85,975, which is $15,400 more than the entry-level Defender 130 with the base 296 horsepower turbocharged 2-liter inline-4 loaded with options. Our example eclipsed $95,000. That sounds like a pricey sum, but these days it's not hard to spend that much on a large SUV, especially when equipped like the Rover. Jeep Rubicon 392 starts at $93,000 and a Ford Bronco Raptor costs at least $91,000. Now they say we're talking about two different customer bases, but the point is off-road SUVs aren't cheap. So if you want a full review of the 130, there's your article. I like up. how they delete the windows and the seats and then charge you extra for having this less content. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they didn't delete the windows. They just covered them. 
Fair. <laughs> You're a good point. That's true. You're right. They did not delete the windows. Yeah. So you're paying for the hiding of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What you're really paying for is removing that signature square that they put on the side. If they had taken out the windows, would that not make it more of, of a van that would be taxed differently here in the U.S.? Or am I thinking wrong? I don't know. Because with the windows covered up, the government could still say that. Okay. I wasn't sure right. if maybe just covering them was one thing, but removing them and putting in... I think if you can't see out of them, the government doesn't call it a window. Okay. There, there's actually one thing I learned recently that I never quite understood about that. What are they calling it? It's not the signature block on the side. Something like that. That the when you get the panniers, that there's actually storage, not in just the pannier, but where that square emblem color swatch thing would be you mean like on the 110 that they have that plastic cover that's just yeah. a square what do you mean storage it's just a square there's a model that you can get where that is they remove the plastic square and then there's a little bit of storage in there oh which is interesting okay i i'm that i'm unaware <laughs> of okay all right then moving on to two videos we're not going to watch the videos together but they're out there for if you wish to watch them. the first one is the 2024 Land Rover Defender 130V8. This is a review out of the UK. Of course, it's subtitled, too big, question mark, too powerful, question mark, too much, question mark, exclamation points. Which would not be a headline for a North American no. large vehicle. Uh, you can, <laughs> yeah, you can tell by that it's definitely not out of the uh, US there, yeah. Yeah, it's not too big, it's not too powerful, it's not too much, and it's not available here. So if you're interested in that, go check that one out. The other one, and both of them, Harold, to a point that you alluded to before, both of these reviewers, the one from the UK and then the second one is from Ireland, they both comment that the PIVI Pro system is one of the best in the industry now. I'm just telling you what they're sharing. Apparently, that's uh, the PIVI Pro system is well regarded, and I think the guy from Britain, the from motors.co.uk, even he thought it was even better than Mercedes. So I guess Rover has learned a thing or two from their mistakes. Uh, Apparently, yes, that's something they're doing well, at least according to these guys. And then the other one, uh, as I mentioned from the Irish Times, this is a test drive of the Land Rover Defender 110P40E 75th Anniversary Edition. And the, the reviewer says he's known to not like SUVs, but he fell in love with this one, really likes it, thinks it's too big, of course, but he likes it. The color of that 75th is pretty cool. That's that, what do they call that color? I forget. It's a, it's illusion back Heritage to green. Heritage green, but it's like the original green of the series. Oh, yes. One, right? Of sage green. The original light, light green cockpit. It was the cockpit green. Is that what it was? Okay. I, sage green? I thought it was something else, but. That was one term for it I've okay. read. Gotcha. Yeah. Nice color. But yeah, he it's usual. It's big. And actually does do, do some little bit of off-roading, of course. It's not like off-roading here in North America, but there you go. And then next, I always, I know, you, if I'm laughing and it, it involves a rover, usually it's because it's going very fast. And that's what this one is. Range Rover Sport SV, the ultimate road rover. Active suspension is at its highest on this 626 horsepower performance SUV. Road and Track, and this is where I get the article from, was invited to the Porto Mayo circuit in Portugal to drive the new Range Rover Sport SV. 
But the very fact that Range Rover reckons the demanding 2.9-mile circuit is an appropriate venue for its 5,770-pound SUV is clear indication of the changing priorities of the performance car world. Spoiler alert, the SV copped with the unlikely challenge better than anything its shape and size has any right to. The previous Range Rover Sport SVR was a big hit for JLR. Comfortably the biggest, no fewer than 26,000 were sold globally. The SVR was no slouch on, on the track. It was denied the honor of being the, the fastest SUV around the Nuremberg ring by the Porsche Cayenne Turbo S, but still posted a time of 8 minutes and 14 seconds. That would have been considered respectable for any sports car a decade earlier, but the SVR was always a rowdy companion, even when you didn't want it to be. Its five-yearly supercharged V8 popped and banged whenever the throttle was lifted, and its suspension lacked the suppleness Range Rovers normally do. There was plenty of iron fist, but not much velvet glove. As with the lesser Range Rover Sport P530, which effectively replaces for 2025, the SV uses a 4.4-liter twin-turbo BMW V8, but with this now making peaks of 626 horsepower and 590 pound-feet of torque, these are increased by 103 horsepower, 37 pound-feet, respectively. It is the most powerful and fastest factory Range Rover yet, with a claimed 3.6 seconds, 0 to 60, and <laughs> 180 mile top speed. It also gets substantial chassis changes over the regular Range Rover Sport. The SV has a new electro-hydraulic anti-roll system, which can counter pitch and dive as well as lean. This despite the fact that the 48-volt anti-roll system is already offered on the standard Sport. The SV also has been given an all-new rear subframe to allow for grippier suspension geometry. A key part of delivering on the remarkable claim, it can generate up to 1.1G of lateral acceleration while riding on the standard all-season Michelin Pilot Sport 4 tires. Only the fully loaded SV Edition 1 will be sold for the 2025 model year, with the total U.S. allocation being just 600 cars, all of which have already been spoken for, according to Range Rover execs. The Edition 1 will cost a very sizable $181,775, including delivery, but won't come fully loaded. The SV steering has been quickened over the regular Range Rover Sport, the rack going from 17.5 to 1 to 13.6 to 1. Rear steer is also standard. The Range Rover SV is not a natural track star. Its mass and tall center of gravity means it tends to be needs to be persuaded to turn, and although the tires can generate huge adhesion, the scale of the force involved means that the contest feels more like wrestling than dancing. The other highlight was the anti-roll system, which continued to keep the SV steady as speed and G-force increased. There was a small amount of lean discernible under the big cornering forces. This reckoned necessary to help the driver orientate to the loadings, but nothing like the angles an SUV would normally generate. I'd be surprised if JLR doesn't rapidly roll the new system out to its other high-end products. So that's your new Range Rover Sport SV. Not SVR, just SV. I haven't really looked into what their implementation of this electro-hydraulic system is i know that the first hydraulic anti-roll system that they introduced was what the discovery 2 i think so i'm curious whether the electro side of that is just 48 volt electric 
pumps, like hydraulic pumps, or whether they're doing some kind of electromagnetic system in there too. I know many years ago, there was a company that had developed a fully electromagnetic suspension system that was real-time response. So this is going to be fun to dig into and see what they're actually doing there. I also think if they're going to start it at 180,000, which is, you know, roughly around the top speed, which surely is just like an engine limiter, they should at least introduce 626 of them to match the horsepower oh, instead of just 600. Look at you be doing marketing for them. They can just send me one and we'll call it even. <laughs> I don't know that you could afford the maintenance. <laughs> How much would the, the uh, brakes, would, the carbon would, fiber wheels? You just run it as long as you can in that case. There we go. There we go. Run it. Yeah. If you didn't pay anything for it, you can throw it away once it breaks. <laughs> and that would be a fun one to run into the ground. Yeah, take it to the romp. <laughs> romp in it. 500 foot pounds of torque. Yeah. In mud and ice. Yeah, that's what you need. Okay. <laughs> It'll clear the tires real quick. But that's about it. Good luck getting some mud tires on that, too, with those carbon fiber wheels. I'll be willing to bet it won't pull 1.1 G's lateral acceleration on mud tires. All right, let's move out of new rovers to older rovers. And out of storage, after 40 years, Peter Sellers' custom 1977 Range Rover needs a new home. Are you in the market for the zombie apocalypse? This is from Auto Revolution. They just found it. This ugly-faced Range Rover wasn't designed to run over zombies. It was actually created for English actor Peter Sellers, and it needs a restoration and a new home. Famous for his roles in Spectre Clouseau, Sellers also was a car enthusiast. He reportedly drove an Aston Martin DB4 GT and a Lamborghini Mura, among others. While this Range Rover may not be the fastest, it's just a special because it was a custom created by Wood and Pickett. Not familiar with the name, the company founded by Bill Wood and Les Pickett in 1947 rose to prominence by tuning and offering various conversions of the Mini Cooper in the 60s. The conversions often included extensive options that only the rich and famous could afford. Notable customers include Elton John, Mick Jagger, and Paul McCartney. In addition to the Mini, Wood, and Pickett also customized Range Rovers. Options included convertible tops, six-wheel conversions, and elongated wheelbases. The slanted grille was a distinctive feature of the wooden picket conversion, which the company dubbed Shear Rover. Sellers did not request the significant modifications to his 77 Range Rover, but the two-door SUV looks rather exotic thanks to the slanted Ferrari Testarossa-style grille and two-tone leather seats. The latter are fully-fledged Recaro units draped in Connolly hide. There's also an extra soundproofing and deep pal carpets for enhanced comfort. The odometer shows 76,000 miles, which should be authentic. Sellers owned the vehicle until he passed away in 1980. Since then, the SUV has been in the same family, although they don't say which family, it's to be noted. While it's not the wildest wooden picket creation, the Shear Rover is indeed an interesting piece of Range Rover history and is quite the exotic vehicle back in 77. Sellers spent 14,000 pounds for the modifications. That's in addition to the 14,250 pound sticker for the new Range Rover. In all, he spent the equivalent of around 160,000 pounds in today's money. It's about $200,000. The project vehicle in need of work, the Shear Rover now has an estimated value of 10,000 to 15,000 pounds. And it sold at Bonhams. So that estimate was 10 to 15,000 pounds. And it sold for 21,000 pounds. So hopefully someone's going to restore it. Not the fastest Range Rover, but certainly one of the ugliest. Yeah, that, yeah. that grill is... Yeah, it doesn't show well because the paint's pretty trashed on the truck. But 
Yeah, that big cow catcher grill and row style wheels. It's just a weird combination of stuff. Yeah, it's very late 70s futurism. And yet at the same time, somehow in this patina, it looks very like straight out of Mad Max film. But yeah, it should have been called the Darth Vader because it was 77. That's when Star Wars came out. Could have had that Darth right. Vader thing going on. I don't think it was Probably capable of breathing Vader. loud enough. Yeah, you have to plug the intake or something to. But they don't get wheeze. It, it doesn't wheeze as it goes down the road. Yeah. Peter Sellers also had another wooden picket car, an Austin Mini with that had the wicker outside to it. Oh. That had a, a rear hatch that he could get in and out of too. He liked the ghost cars. And next is a 1971 Range Rover convertible conversion. And this was on Bring a Trailer. It's an early suffix A example that was delivered new in the UK before undergoing a convertible conversion performed by Special Vehicle Conversions Limited in Uckfield. A subsequent refurbishment was completed by Simon Huntington Limited in Wigton. Prior to the truck being brought to the U.S. in 2019, the three-door the three door body is finished in Lincoln Green and wears a tan Everflex top, while the right-hand drive cabin houses front bucket seats and a rear bench trimmed in tan leather. If you want to see the pictures and read more about it, you can. It's on Bring a Trailer. It did sell in late February for $37,750 U.S. Nice-looking vehicle. Looks like it's in good shape. Super easy to get access to the rear seats in that two-door model. Oh, yes. Compared to yeah, you just need a knife. vehicle. You just cut the... Yeah, whip. when the top is up, for sure. Yeah. I got a Sawzall. I can make one of those <laughs> if somebody wants one. Perfect, perfect. And finally, someone sent this to me, and I don't recall who sent it to me, but this is a Land Rover Discovery. This is a Series 1 Discovery, 116-inch. It's another example of a rare and interesting Land Rover conversion. Here's the story as told by noted author and historian James Taylor. Several of a probable 15 examples built still survive, although updates would be welcome. I'll read you some of the parts of this article. At the time the original Land Rover Discovery was launched in 1989, it was standard procedure at the firm to treat every new model as a potential basis for conversions that would broaden its customer appeal. In the earliest times, most of that had been left to the aftermarket conversion specialist, but the company policy was now to use its special vehicle operations division to shut the aftermarket converters out of the picture and bring as much profit as possible. The plan was also to withdraw the Range Rover from the conversions market to protect its luxury image and to move the Discovery into place. The SVO constructed two prototypes beginning probably in late 1990. One was based on a three-door Discovery, one on a five-door model. In each case, the wheelbase was extended by 16 inches. Either would work as a cross-country ambulance, but SVO probably wanted to see which would be more cost-effective to build, as well as to see how potential customers would react to each one. Both were initially equipped as ambulances, and it may mean that the 116-inch wheelbase had been chosen because it would allow a full-size stretcher to be carried behind the front seats without extending the rear overhang. And there's more to read, but I'll skip down to the middle here. As for the five-door, the H-registered prototype became a demonstrator and then served as the works ambulance at the Austin Rover's Longbridge plant. Orders for this variant were clearly hard to come by, and the only multiple vehicle order came from the mobile oil company, which ordered three in 1992-93 for its field engineers. In calculating the figure of the 15 for the 116-inch Discoveries, I've assumed two demonstrators, six for Northumbria, one each for Lancashire and Derbyshire, and one for the Land Rover events team, three for mobile and one for BAE. 
Registration numbers have been changed to, which makes it harder to keep up with where they all are. But if you have details of one that you think I haven't included here or know more about the supposed Land Rover events team vehicle, please get in touch. And that is from James Taylor. Of course, we'll have a link to the article so you can get in touch if you do know more about these, I guess, prototypes, special conversion units. They're pretty cool. Yeah, I especially like the look of the five-door with the way that they added that middle, almost like airplane window kind of yes, yes. window extension wow. there. Yeah. Must make uh, for some good legroom in the back seat. Oh, yeah. Oh, exactly. Without going for doors that open super wide. But you wonder why they didn't pull a modern Defender 130 and just extend the back instead of extending the middle. Yeah, that was still, the Discovery was still more Range Rover platform than Defender platform. And at the time this was being made, the way you made a Defender 130 was to stretch a 110 by 17 inches. Yeah, for those that don't know, James Taylor is actually quite a renowned author of books on different Land Rovers and so on. Series 1s, 2s, 3s, all the different variants and conversions and so on. He's got quite a library out there. If you go and just search on uh, James Taylor on Amazon, they'll do add Rover into your search string. Otherwise, you're <laughs> going to get a lot of music at the same time. Also does a regular series of short articles on his Facebook feed and in the Ottawa Valley newsletter. The OVLR newsletter again. Last one in North America. Do you still print it on paper? No, the PDF is available for people to go and print. The, the cost of mailing has is more than printing it now. That is the news then for February of 2023. Uh, we are now 2024. Thank you for the correction. It's now 2024. And now welcome to the Center Steer podcast from Western Canada. We don't often get to hear folks from Western Canada, but it's Alistair Hesp and Jerry Starr with Hesp Automotive. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And so you're in BC, British Columbia, is that right? Yeah, we're in Port Moody, BC, just outside of Vancouver. Beautiful water town here. It's the name. And what does Hesp Automotive do? Hesp Automotive was an automotive shop that I started 22 years ago. We're full service Land Rover products. We do everything. But now we've moved over and we're starting up a, a shop called Hesp Originals that Jerry's heading up. And we're diving into the electric conversion world. Before we get to that, how, how did you get into the Rover world? Did you get the disease? You know what? I was born in England. I was raised in England. And that helps. When you're a kid in England, you get all those metal toys that are full of lead that you shouldn't play with back in the 70s. <laughs> and a few of them were Land Rovers and combine harvesters and that sort of stuff. That's where it ultimately started. And then I got my Red Seal certification here in BC in 96, I think it was, 96, 97. And the shop I worked for was horrendous. It was terrible. Like I used to gamble the paychecks and it was just not a very pretty scene. So I went out looking for a job and there was a Land Rover dealership in Richmond, which is close to us. And I went every day and just hounded the service manager every single day. And eventually he gave me a job to get me out of his hair. That was in the early 90s. So I'm, I'm a master on all the discos that came out. That was in 95, 96. So right. disco ones, saw the entrance of the disco twos all the P38s and stuff. And I, I don't think I've done so many head gaskets and rear main seals. It's not even funny. Keeping you in business. <laughs> 
It was. It kept the dealerships in business for sure. Certainly um, well practiced at it now. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I ended up being the shop foreman there. And then we did part of it. We got into the guild surface, the guild for Land Rover. I became a master technician for that. And I won several Canadian technicians awards because every year Land Rover has a North American challenge where, where they, you write exams and then you go and challenge people on cars and stuff. And it's a competition they have. And I've done that a few years. No, it was full of fun. We did the dealership, the Calgary dealership Trek competition in 90, 99, I think it was with the Disco 2s when they came out. Oh, fresh, new, brand new um, Disco 2s. Yeah, that were the absolute garbage. They showed up <laughs> off the trucks and they had a box of parts in the back that they expected us to change before we even took them out for a road test. Really? So, really? Wow. Uh, on purpose to test your skill or just because well, no, you're not ready? <laughs> no, they showed up and in the back of the trunk were all the idler pulleys and belts and sway bar links. It was all sorts of stuff in the trunk that uh, we had to change when we did the PDIs on them. Wow. Yeah. And how was that competition part, the, the journey in the D2s? Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Some of the stuff where you're doing 47, 48 degree inclinations and they've got ropes attached to the car so you don't flip it, but the mirror on the driver's side is touching the ground and stuff. And yikes, it was a lot of fun. The guys really enjoyed it. That side of it's not for me, but I'm definitely more on the technical side. Are you um, driving I, or are you just along for mechanical support? I was along for mechanical support. Okay. We had four guys from our dealership that were actually in the competition. You weren't enjoying it so much because you're the one that had to fix it after it broke. Yeah, no, it's, it was, yeah, no, it was a lot of fun, but it's a lot of work trying to keep some of these early discos on the road. Really? And I've even, some of the TSB bulletins that are out there in the Land Rover books were even produced by myself over the years. You find common things, problems, you write to the dealership, and now all of a sudden you, you've got a TSB out that's got your initials in it, which is cool. So Very cool. Is. Hence the reason you won awards. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. But yeah. you know what? I got tired of the human resource manual that was two and a half inches thick for the dealership and all the issues and that sort of stuff. So I quit. I ended up wheeling my toolbox down the road, across the driveway and into Mercedes-Benz, and I was there for a year. And I couldn't take the Mercedes-Benz regimental part of it. So I quit and I opened up a shop in 2002. And here we are 21 years later and it's been flourishing. I've had no, no issues with that at all. Have you owned any actual Land Rovers? <sighs> so I just sold. <laughs> I like how um, there was, that was that pause there. We all heard that. <laughs> yeah. So we've owned a Trying few, to decide uh, where to start. Yeah. I just sold my 94 Defender 90 NAS on bring a trailer. I had that for 20 years and I sold it on Bring a Trailer. It was the green color. And I think it sold for 87 or 88,000 US. About right. It's where they're yeah, at. I did a galvanized frame on it and done all that sort of stuff. I loved it. And what else have I had? I've had, I bought number six of the 2005 G4 Challenge vehicles. That was a Range Rover and I bought it out of Sacramento, California. And we flew down to pick it up. And as we're driving by, there's a hundred cops because there's some drive-by shooting and there's people dead all over the place as we roll into the dealership to pick this truck up. So we couldn't get out of there fast enough with it. How did the G4 perform? You know what? It was the shits. It had the BMW 4.4 liter first generation motor in it, which was out of the older X5s. And it's an absolute boat anchor. It's the worst motor I've ever dealt with in a Land Rover. Once they got into the 4.4 liters and the 4.2s in 2006, things really turned around. And it's been my experience that most everything that BMW contributed to Land Rover was a bad idea. 
Yeah, I mean, they got rid of the GEMS engine management system out of the discos and they went to the Bosch system and it seemed to improve the fuel economy a little bit, but uh, they were still open wallet insert gas pump every every corner anyway. And they took away all the serviceability of the disco too. Yeah, things changed and now we're into completely different things. We're into these straight six-cylinder in GM engines that are, I don't know, I have, haven't become in love with them yet. You've had this G4 Range Rover, you've had a, looks like a 94 NAS. D90 yeah. or 10, 110? I, yeah, no, it was a, an NAS 110. 110. I had an 82 lightweight. Oh, tell um, us more. We had a, a customer that went to one of the local islands here and he came across this lightweight. And with the lightweight were about a dozen sets of military axles from series that were still in the crates. And there was a whole pile of stuff. I ended up buying it with a trailer and a bunch of one-ton trucks and we went over and picked everything up. The lightweight was phenomenal. Ended up selling it because it was a young kid that wanted his first Land Rover and he wanted to restore it and everything. So I had it for a couple of years and then he took it off my hands and he's still driving it. I see it at the shows. Oh, excellent. That's the, good. Uh, local Land Rover shows. Do you have a favorite? You know what? You're going to, I bought a 2024 130 outbound. Oh. And, and right now it's becoming, I think, my favorite out of all time. Okay. Keep talking. Let's hear yeah, why. Because, I don't know, just everything about it, the ergonomics of it, the usability of it. There's definitely a couple of little glitches in there that we, sh we should do some software updates to fix. The weight to power ratio, the fuel economy, it's got absolutely everything that I wanted in a truck. What do you use that outbound for? We have, we sitting in our feet here, we've got a 120 pound dog that roams the shop here. So I bought the 130 without the, because it doesn't come with the third row of seats. So it's an absolutely huge compartment in the back. So it's a perfect spot for a big dog. I've only had it literally 2,000 kilometers. We're, we're still working on it. It ends up next week. It's being rented for a movie shoot for a week. Oh, They're going to set the roof on fire, and then they're going to drive it through a city or something on fire. So we'll see how that goes. Any TV show or movie you can mention yet? Uh, it's called Kanji, K-A-N-J-I-3. Okay. It's, it's a series, like a sci-fi series. We just bought a bunch of Land Rover props and some cars from a movie called Locked with Anthony Hopkins. And the entire movie is filmed with him locked inside the Land Rover. Oh, interesting. It's because you could see the Land Rover, they would have got sued. So they've altered all the vehicles. So you can't tell their Land Rovers. Some of them wow. are old. Some of them have got, I've got 24 inch gangbanger wheels in the shop here that they had on one of them and all that sort of stuff but what model was you know, it they were all 110s brand new 110s they destroyed three of them oh geez come on oh, there's people my. waiting for parts that have broken them and there are people like yeah. waiting for years yeah. to get their 110 yeah. no no let's start, let's send yeah. three to a movie and destroy them yeah. well, i've got engines and transmissions and rims and body panels and bumpers and everything i just bought it all there was a, a guy that i just saw a picture at the winter rump that hit a tree and took out the front of his i think it was 110 so yeah. maybe have him call you <laughs> yeah no get him we've got skid plates and bumpers and headlights yeah. it's, it's, it was an opportunity i couldn't turn down yeah that's exactly sure. so so this what do you plan to do with your uh outbound your 130 outbound do you, are you a camper are you an off-roader overlander or just taking the dog around you know what we do travel with the family i'm uh, an avid marksman with firearms and stuff so i'm always at competitions and we're always across the province so it'll end up being a bit of a camping thing and stuff. The movie industry has bought front runner roof racks. 
And the one is to put on, one's going to get burnt, and one's going to be for the movie. So we'll end up with those afterwards. So maybe it'll give me an opportunity to put a tent on top or something. But I don't want to be that that pedantic person with the off-road vehicle that has no scratches, but it's got a tent on the top. So <laughs> you know, the, the tactical weekend warrior. So, someone who defines off-road as the parking lot. Yeah, at Walmart overnight, right? We have a friend here in the Pittsburgh area who has a uh, Series 3. and. Do uh, I? Two-way, excuse me, thanks. Yeah, two-way who, for him, off-roading is going to the Home Depot parking lot. Yeah, no, we got a lot of those. We get a lot of we get a lot of defenders here from Bulgaria and Spain and Germany, 110s that we fix up and certify for people so they can drive them here. But you'd be surprised if I could get more automatic ones, it would be a much better scenario because I'm finding a lot of the people back away because their wives can't drive the standards. Wives need to learn. A lot of people, I've had tons of people, the guy says, oh, if I could only find an automatic, my wife would let me buy it. It sounds to me like an excuse. Really. Actually, I found Land Rover is the best thing to, dr- to learn to drive a stick on. Yeah. And, you know, they're low, they're low hmm. geared and the engine typically doesn't lug unless you're really doing a, having a problem. Yeah. It's the best thing to learn uh, a stick. Any other older vehicles you've owned that you really like? I hear you might be a, a oh. disco two or one fan i've had dozens of disco ones we've just bought another one that should be a whole nother podcast tips and tricks on disco <laughs> ones and twos actually um, that's not a bad idea actually just a special <laughs> we could do that yeah. we could do that that's actually not a bad idea yeah it's the amount of stuff we've done on those we used to work at as teams at the dealership and we we had remains remain seals down to under an hour do you pull the transmission out or do you pull the engine out to do that you pull the transmission back about six inches. All right. Don't drop it down. Just pull it back. Yeah. Just pull it back, drop it down and then, or pull it out and then drop the oil pan. And you've got to pull the main seal cap out of the back. Okay. Cause you got to do the cross seals. And the only real way to put the rear main back in is to put it around the crank first and then put the cap on. Okay. But then it still didn't guarantee it wasn't going to leak a year later. Nothing so. guarantees that. No. Actually, there's only one way to guarantee that it won't leak in a year, and that's to not, never put any oil back in it and don't drive it. Well, we get those with the newer cars. We get those with the five liters, that's for sure, because they don't have a dipstick and people haven't figured out how to check the engine oil. So, Are you uh, an older Land Rover fan, series trucks, or, or Range Rover Classics? The 82 lightweight was the oldest I ever had, but Jerry beside me here, he's got more 50s and 60s Land Rovers and stuff than you can shake a stick at. Jerry, uh, let's hear a little bit about your your old school Land Rover ownership. I have a soft tooth for the early series stuff, that's for sure. I'm, I've got an 80 inch that I'm desperately trying to complete by buying more 80 inches. That's how you do that. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. I've got a Series 2A that was that I drive every summer, usually throughout the summer. Probably one of my favorite Land Rover I've ever owned. What year is that? Uh, 71. So last year. Have you named it? Summer. Oh, it is called Summer. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Yeah. No, that's a different name that I've heard before, but that's good. Summer. Well, Do you only drive summer in the summer? It. Yeah, I drive it in the summer and my, my 80 inches, many different colors, and my daughter named it Autumn. That's cool. Very nice. Oh. And you only drive that in the autumn? Oh, it's not on the road yet. It's not on the road. Maybe in a few more years if I'm proactive. Is that the season in which you work on it? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't done much work on it in quite some time. Hasn't been autumn for a while either. Uh, yeah. That's one of the reasons when you come on the podcast, we chide you 
try to get back to work. Well, Alistair is a very generous man, so I'm going to bring a project in the shop pretty soon. I oh, see. okay. <laughs> I saw that look. <laughs> is he just learning this? <laughs> yeah, there it is. Now there's in front of a crowd, solidify yes. it. He can't yeah, say it's no. Recorded. Now. It's going to be published. Everybody uh, now knows. I think, I, think that. Be, oh, okay. I think there'll be a four to five week turnaround if it ends up in the shop. So. <laughs> it's one way to get your projects done. Alistair, you're not a you're not a older school Land Rover fan or is it just you just kind of no, it's not it's not that I'm not a fan I love the look of them and we've done some conversions on some and we repair a lot and we get Santana's through here we get everything yeah but being in this business I've been so busy and it's been 365 days a year that taking on projects just hasn't been a forte for me I buy a disco one I fix it up then I make it a loaner car then end up selling it to somebody because they fall in love with it or I've never bought something that hasn't run. And it's just from a, it's just more of an ability to not have something sitting around in the shop that I'll never get to, or it'll never leave. I've always said, if I get a project, it's got to be drivable when it shows up, right? So it's more of a time and effort. Yeah. But now we've got some, we've got a couple of trucks that we've got here from uh, Bulgaria. And these are the ones we're doing the electric conversions on. And the more I dig into them, the more they're growing on us for sure. What models are those? These are both Series 3s. Okay. Hence, that's why Jerry's had to find us some uh, gentlemen in England to make us some lower dashes because they're all rotten and then they've all fallen apart. Yeah, they're all bad by now. Yeah. So you're having them made? Yeah, I found somebody in England that was gonna that's making them for us and because they're also left-hand drive. So he made, he built a jig just for us to make, to make some dashes, lower dashes at least. Is he going to make more for other people too? I'm sure he could. I will keep that in mind because people do ask me about that some, sometimes. It's being shipped, I think, next week. So it should be here pretty quickly. And we could, I can definitely let you know. And is he upholstering them too, or are they just the metal? Just metal. Okay. 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 Sorry. It's, that's all right. The dog wants to join the podcast. Yeah, the 120-pound dog wanted to say hi. So. That's It's great. What's the dog's name? Titus. Titus. Yeah, that's, Titus. that yeah. gives you a sense of the size. He's our Walmart greeter. As soon as somebody gets a high bill, we send in the dog to calm them down. Excellent. Uh, is, are there any other rovers that have entered the shop that you've end up keeping because you liked it so much? Or is it typically everything just flowing through the shop and back out again? No, there's lots of stuff that have come through the doors. But at the end of the day, everything's for sale. And what I found is I've had some trucks that have absolutely loved, but there's somebody who's new to Land Rovers and have seen the truck and have fallen in love with the truck and they just need it. I think we all you know, have that all here in the podcast yeah, can all attest to that. But a lot of the trucks that I've had and trucks that I fixed up and stuff mm-hmm. like that, they always seem to go to people where it's their first Land Rover. Yeah. Those so, guys pay yeah. better usually. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe at the beginning. But yeah. You always pay more for your first one. Yeah. Believe it or not, I've owned two Freelanders. Well done, sir. Tell yeah, us more. And, what years? Uh, they were both 2000, 2000 and 2001. Oh, so that was before they came to uh, North America. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Automatic they were, or stick? No, they're all automatic. I've okay. never seen a stick one here yet. No, yeah. They never shipped um, a manual to North America, I don't think. No, no they didn't. Nor uh, the diesel. It's funny. I have a, a gentleman that has a, has a car dealership and we fix all his Land Rovers for him and stuff. And he's got a, I think it's a 2004 Freelander convertible. The SE3? Um, 
Is that the yeah. three door? Yeah, that's the SC3. Yeah. Yeah. He's got it on his website for $38,000 Canadian. <laughs> It'll be there a while. Yeah, I don't know anybody that's, uh, no, not even, if no. I had stupid money, I don't think no. I'd even do that. That's, no. that's the repair bill, not the sale price. Yeah. The diesel ones that I drove in England were phenomenal, but I think the problem was as soon as they stuffed that Volvo V6 in there, we had timing chains that people did. They did them too tight. They sheared off the ends of the camshafts. We we just had coolant issues. We had guys trying to fix their head gaskets. As soon as they pulled the head, the sleeves came out with the head, with the pit, with the cylinder heads. And it just wasn't a very user-friendly vehicle yep. as far as being fixed. And, and hence the reason we won't even allow one through the door now. Because yep. I touch it and I fix a headlight. And now I'm on the hook for a transmission or something before it leaves the shop. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It was such a well done car for Europe. And then when it came to North America, they really screwed it up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Which, neat concept, but it lost something in, in the execution. Yep. Yeah. The LR twos have turned out to be really good with the, yeah. the street six, 3.2 liter. I had never done an engine on that until a week ago, a gentleman was going up the hill and the check engine light started flashing and he put his foot into it just to get to the top of the hill. And that's the first 3.2 liter I've pulled apart ever. And it's the last I'll pull apart. I had to order valves from China. Wow. I had to order seals from England. I had to order stuff from Taiwan. There's nothing available to fix that engine because they never get pulled apart. They're literally bulletproof. It was like a 26-hour job to do a cylinder head on it. Wow. Yeah. Great cars if they're running, but yeah. the 3.2 is definitely a tough one to fix. Have you uh, gotten into the club scene there in uh, British Columbia or maybe an outside so of that? There's one main club here called the Roverlanders, and they've been around for years. And we sponsor them. We support them. We pay for the yearly advertising in their magazines and that sort of stuff. We built some defenders and taken them there. We won best in show with a 110 that we built one year and that sort of stuff. Great group of guys. They're not really on my radar as far as customers go. As most club people fix their own cars, buy their own parts and that sort of stuff. But uh, I'm here to support them. I know Jerry's a, a member of the club too, and we, we try and do everything we can for them. Yeah, we don't get to hear too often from British Columbia. Unfortunately, Dixon, who's at the main winter romp, has said for years, there's a club out there. They, they don't seem to communicate with the rest of the community. It's a good club. It's got lots of members. They have a show once a year at an indoor horse arena, like a, a barn system. And they get tons out and they do courses and little off-road things. And then throughout the year, they do off-road adventures. And some of the pictures are just beautiful that people are posting on top of mountains in the middle of nowhere. Are they doing um, that in British Columbia then? Is that yeah, where that yeah. activity is? Yeah. So we, we've got some of the most amazing off-roading available anywhere in Canada. It's just absolutely beautiful. You're 10 minutes out of where we live here and you're up 4,000 feet on a mountain if you want. It's just amazing. Is that event take place at the same time in the same place every year? No, what they do is they do the Founders Day and then they do an off-road event the next day, but they have several listed on their website throughout the year. So they do, I think it's six or seven events throughout the year. And That's then like they also do that. Social uh, gathering. Yeah. There's Van Dusen Garden, all British field. That's always a great show to go to. And uh, I think this year the club hosted the, North, the Northwest Challenge as well, which I think was in Princeton, if I'm correct. They don't list any of that on their website. <laughs> There's nothing there really? about any events or anything. I, I, I'm uh, on roverlanders.bc.ca, and there's nothing about any events. If you go in the events 
upcoming in past. So it's in the form. I think it's in the form. It's all in the form. Okay. That yeah. Be, yeah. You, you probably have to join. Actually, yeah, but you know what? They should be listing those events and stuff outside yeah. of the forum for people yeah. who, who are we'll interested. Have a talk, we'll have a chat with them about that because that's, yeah, you should have that listed outside so you get yeah. new people arriving and new people joining and stuff. If you don't advertise, no one's going to know. So coming up yeah. in your part of the world is the Pacific Coast Rover is having an ARC-related event on May 24th through 27th, officially inviting you to come on down across the border to that to, and then maybe maybe some of the... BC club folks can get exposure to an arc. Whereabouts is that going to be this year? They have not said the exact location that has not been set, but I believe I'm fairly certain the date is 24 through 27 of May. Maybe it's that's in Oregon it. somewhere, right? I believe I, that's my understanding is in Oregon. I'm on the Anark okay. board. I just know they're working on the location. I believe the date is locked down because uh, I added it to the website. Maybe we'll have to, maybe we'll have to trailer an electric series down there to show people. There so. you go. May, there you go. We can get you connected up with the Anark with the, with the Greater Anark Club. Yeah, we'll tow, tow the series down with an outbound. There you go. Oh, that'd be perfect. That'd be great. Yes. That'd be yeah. fantastic. So, do you have you gone to any other events or done uh, any other thing in uh, North America, or maybe have you traveled? Sounds like you've traveled the UK. Have you done any rallying over there? Yeah, I've done the UK. I've done some stuff with Britpart and All Makes. They've been great helpers of ours over the last years and stuff. So, we go down there and try and do some things when they're doing it. Honestly, for myself, it's just been nose to the grind. It's uh, a full time job trying to keep these things on the road and keeping the staff busy and, and keeping the business flourishing for sure. I'm hoping this electric project when once we've got some cars other than customers' cars, our personal cars done that we'll be able to do some more traveling and some more showing of it to people. So tell us more about the electric conversion. How'd you get into that? The original way we got into it was we had a local architect and he is very green. So he builds wooden high rises and wooden skyscrapers. And that's what he does. And he's done TED Talks and he's won Architect of the Year and everything. And he approached me one day. He has a 67 series mm. and he said he wanted to convert it. And I thought he was nuts. And then I thought about it and we figured we'd do it. And three years later, he's driving it as a daily driver now. What kind of range yeah. and what did you... So it was all done by the seat of our pants and it was done by reading a lot of books and figuring this out and figuring that out. He's only about 24 kilowatts, so he's about 80 to 100 kilometers range, and it's an HP motor that's bolted to the original transmission using an adapter plate. We used a Curtis a motor controller and then an Orion battery control system, and we put lithium-ion batteries in it, so 36 of them. We had 12. There's pictures on, I think there's pictures on HESP originals, but we had... 12 batteries under the hood, and then we put battery boxes underneath the seats, and we had two on either side, so there was a total of 36 batteries. Since then, the batteries have changed because they used to be about 8 inches tall and about 6 inches wide, and now they're coming down in size that we we're able to get them smaller. So his range has gone up a little bit, but it's just, it was weird. It's just had enough range for him? Yeah, because he has a, he also has a 132 Raider we built him. He's got a 90 diesel 300 TDI that we built him. He's got a stack of other vehicles. And now he's got a series. What years is Red One? 70. He's got a series, a, a 1970 that he found in a field that we just got running that's literally had the daylights beaten out of it, but it runs permanently and it runs great. In between the four of them, the range is enough for sure. How know? long does it take to to charge those back up? It's on a stage two charger now, so yeah. it's about six hours to charge it back up. 
Yep. So it's not bad. But remember, that was three years. That was three years of how do I wire this? So if he gets in an accident, I don't fry him with 100, 100 volts AC and all this sort of stuff. We've come a long way now from three years. We're now down to four to six weeks. Oh, for uh, a conversion, really? For a conversion That's now, yeah. So what? Uh, tell us more about how that occurs and, and what you do. Right now, we're using a NextGain Hyper 9 motor. And in the series trucks, it's bolted to the transmission. You could convert so it, I guess, to Tesla X and do a gear ratio reduction and all that sort of stuff. But there's something about a series truck that's missing the shifter that's just not right. Correct. You are right. Um, <laughs> yes. And you is know? that sort of a pancake yeah, so this style? Is, so these are bolted to the transmission. You could stay in third all day long. And if you start, you want to go a little faster, you shift to fourth. But the transmission, the clutch, everything like that still works. And plus now, using Tesla battery packs, we're able to get the cars up to between 37 and 45 kilowatts. That's pretty good. We're now sticking 120 to 150 horsepower in a series truck. Expecting <laughs> it to stop and steer. You know what? We, 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 part of the kit, it's a mandatory disc brake conversion. Okay. So we convert the front and rear to Defender 110 brakes with a booster. Some of the, a lot of the trucks out here don't didn't come with boosters. We've had the pedal boxes made to to fit booster conversions and all that sort of stuff. Right. Are you putting the whole Defender axle under it, or are you just no? We're, it's it's everything staying completely stock. We're just driving the transmission, so the transfer case, the diffs, the gear ratio, everything stays the way it is. But to convert to disc brakes, are you just swapping the ends out, or do you just put the whole Defender axle under it? No, we're putting plates that we've had made. Okay. We're putting adapter plates oh, cool. on that will hold calipers and then the hubs, the series hubs is a bit of machining on the series hubs to fit okay. and change them to longer studs for wolf wheels. So the wolf wheels, okay. the calipers and stuff. So you're literally only using Defender calipers and rotors then. And, and exactly. Else, the series yeah, truck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wolf wheels because we need just a little bit bigger to, to pass the calipers. But I see now that I think it's Exmoor or Britpart are now making a steel wheel that has the same offset and the same dimensions as a Wolf, but it's a series mm -hmm. style. So oh. that's something I'll most probably look into in the future. Do you have a regenerative braking? No, we have on our brackets, we have that for the brakes, but we haven't got into that yet. The series we're trying to keep pretty basic. As Jerry noted, the main reason for doing the series conversions is, how do I put this politically correct? I'm not an electric car fan. Okay. I'm not going to rush out and buy a Tesla. It is not going to happen. I'm not going to rush out and buy a new electric vehicle. I have some issues with how the batteries are made, where the raw materials come from. I think there's a lot of pollution involved in it. Yeah, that they're not as green as everybody wants to think. No, and we just don't see a lot of that stuff that goes on to it. So what we've done is we've decided to purchase one-year-old battery packs that are already in circulation. They're here. Let's make them right. and let's do something with them. Repurpose You've them. already trashed the environment. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the neat thing is you're now taking a vehicle where somebody's not driving it because the fuel goes bad. It won't start. The carburetor's hacked. The motor's got a knock in it or something. And you're right. taking it from, from that stance to the guy wakes up in the morning. It's a beautiful day. He hops in his car. He unplugs the lead and he goes for a drive for a couple hours. Yeah. It's become that nostalgic thing where people can drive it. Now, all those parts that are coming out, 
lots of people that have got series trucks. They need a motor. They need a steering gear. They need this. Now those parts that we've taken out are now becoming readily available for other projects. So hopefully those projects get finished. Now those people are on the road driving. It's a, a, re- a recycling program almost once the electric car is built. For the, the gear shifts, so you maintain the low range and in the series. Yes. How does that actually work? in the sense that are you actually getting a lower range? So what we're doing is on the series trucks, we're replacing the engine right. with an electric motor. That's it. Okay. So All right. So you still have, so you still have the red knob. You still have right. the yellow knob. You still yeah. have the, the if, black if, knob. Yeah. If you wanted, you could put free spinning hubs on the front or you could remove the front drive shaft. If you're, if you're not going to be using it for its four wheel drive capabilities, and then you get a little bit more range out of it. Right. But this is basically you get in and, and and it's exactly the same as it would have been with a gas motor, but it's reliable and it gets you where you're going. And you've still got charging systems where you're you're six hours or five hours and you're fully charged again, right? And, and if you're commuting to work or whatever, you plug in while you're there. And then when you come home, you plug in again and, and you're good. Yeah, I think it's about five hours to do it, to charge it up fully. But it's just kids, are, you see the parents taking their kids out, you see them taking their mom and dad out in them. It's just a, just such a nostalgic truck. And now you have more people enjoying it because they're not, you know what? There's a lot of people out there that want a car and they want a, a cool collector's vehicle, but they're not mechanically inclined. They're not like us. They don't get their hands dirty. They don't want to fix a carburetor. They don't know what a monkey fondulating reciprocator valve is. They've got issues with this stuff. They having might a, want a clean well, garage floor. But or they don't have a garage at all. Yeah, yeah. Just being able to unplug it and go yeah. for a drive, and they're driving a 1960s Land Rover. It's just so cool to see. Or they want to have a yeah. conversation with their girlfriend while they're traveling. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's the <laughs> conversation is overrated. <laughs> what I should have said is, you want to listen to a podcast while you're driving <laughs> your you series go. truck. See, that's yeah. what you want to do. Yeah, we put Marshall stereo systems in them. So there's lots of, you have all the amenities, hand-free, Bluetooth music and all that sort of stuff. How loud Uh, is it though, when you switch over to, can you now hear the transmission whine? Oh yeah, you can hear the whine. That's all you hear. (laughs) Yeah, that's about it. But it's just the weirdest feeling accelerating and just having all this bottom end torque. Right. And you're going and literally the only thing you hear is the transmission whine. That is the absolute best thing about electric vehicles is you get 100% torque at zero RPM. Yeah, and these things aren't meant for highway cruising. They're just daily drivers for people to get stop and go, Starbucks, that sort of stuff. Then you get into the Defenders, and now you're entering a whole new world of usability and systems. It's a completely different setup for the Defenders, right? So, And are you getting into electric conversion for Defenders? Yeah, no, we're getting into those. So right now, the series trucks, there's an electric motor on the transmission. The battery pack is under the hood. And the electric controls are in a box in the back of the truck in the bed there. When you get into Defenders, it's a Tesla Model X transfer case with dual motors. But we changed the gear ratio that's inside of it from the Teslas to one that will work on the Defender 110. And then you remove the transmission, the transfer case, and everything right out of it. So the only thing powering the car is the transfer case underneath from the Tesla with the two electric motors. What kind of horsepower are you getting there? So a 55 kilowatt kit, which is the entry level, will get you about 280 to 290 horsepower. <laughs> nice. 
you're, you're zero to 60 miles an hour. I think we need to pause the podcast for everybody to, to take a moment. If you're driving, you <laughs> stop your vehicle. What is it now? Zero to 60 and what? Zero to 60 in 5.2 seconds. My gosh. My That's so, so right in the neighborhood of a supercharged Range Rover Sport uh, or something. You know what? Guys have a thing about, oh, let's do an LS swap on a Defender and LS swap. Ah. Blah. You know what? This is going to cost you the same as an LS swap, and now you've got an electric vehicle. Yeah, which the means there's tax credits involved too. Yeah, quite pro- often in some places there are. Yeah, the problem like this, and it's funny you bring that up because this Defender Outbound is classified as a hybrid Defender. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, but it's not. And apparently, Land Rover. The reason they put this MEHI system in it was for corporations to allow employees and people to get the tax credit for us. Mm. But uh. the only thing the 48 volt system does in the outbound is turn on the supercharger. So this so right. the speed six is supercharged and turboed. Wow. And the supercharger comes into fast idle, high idle, idle at traffic lights and stuff. And that's all the 48 battery, the, all the 48 volt system does is charge is use that supercharger. Interesting. Wow. So yeah. it is, I can't remember. Is that actually an electric supercharger or it just is no, it, turning it's on an, the supercharger? It's an electric supercharger that's yeah. powered by the 48 volts. But that's what yep. they did to now get the car into the bracket of getting a discount because you're buying a hybrid vehicle. Yep. Yeah. So that's heavy on the mild part of mild hybrid. Exactly. Yeah. Here in BC, if you bring us a vehicle, we do the conversion, then it has to pass a government inspection to prove that it's been done to standards which are non-existent, to be honest with you. So I basically have to sign my name off saying if this guy gets in an accident, it's not going to blow up on him. And then the vehicle gets the registration converted from gas or diesel to electric. But there's no physical money savings for anybody that does a conversion. Gotcha. All the money savings are when you buy a new electric vehicle. There's very little, I haven't heard of any actually provision for conversion of classic cars, which would be... I think it actually would be a killer thing to do and help to help the, that whole aspect of it converting. And the other problem you run into in classic cars right now is if you have a classic car here in British Columbia and you convert it to electric, it's no longer a classic vehicle. Oh, so you lose right. $200. You've altered the specification. Yeah. Up. Yeah. So you yeah. don't get the $200 a year insurance policy and you don't get all the perks of that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I don't need collector's plates on it. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's like, I'm going to yeah. drive it when I want to drive it. Don't want to. Yeah. But then we have we also have so that so that 55 kilowatt kit for the Defenders that gets you about 150 miles, and a full charge is about 30 minutes using a rapid charging station. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Can you use the Tesla chargers? Yeah, yeah. all of them work. I, I don't know. I watched a show the other day on charging stations, and it's quite depressing. I think three out of 12 only worked when the lady went across Canada. I think I'm, you know. Yeah, I think there's something I've done that here in the U.S. Yeah. too. And there's been. Yeah, and then issue. some of them are charged in kilowatts, and some of them are charged in minutes, and some of them are charged in voltage, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. But we do have another kit, which is 110 kilowatts. And that takes you from 150 to 300 miles. Nice. Twice the watts, so twice, twice the miles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 110's yeah. very appropriate, by the way. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They're there. It's it's one of those things. And the 110, the, sorry, the 110 kilowatt conversion on a Defender actually replaces the front seats. Oh, you have to swap some out the, the whole seat box? Yeah, oh. the whole seat box. And make some make the room for the batteries. Yeah, we put the oh. battery packs in either side. Yeah. Some are under the hood. 
But when you get when you double the range, we need double the space. So now under the seats are controllers and battery packs and everything. Do you, yeah. Where else do the batteries go? The 55 kilowatt would all be under the hood. Oh, okay. And nothing in the rear. Nothing in the back. No. In the tub at all. Oh, okay. I always thought that seemed like a good place for them, but I guess that's not. And they usually have drive lines. Yeah, we try and put the controllers in a box in the back. So it's easy to open up the floor, easy to access the controllers and all the wiring and everything. But there's so much space in the front engine now, in the front compartment of the truck. You got rid of the battery, you got rid of the engine, you got rid of the transmission, right. you got rid of all that stuff. And the truck's braking is designed on a 60-40 split, so you've got to have some sort of heavy weight at the front. Okay, so that's to do with the braking then. Okay. Yeah, the right. symmetry of the vehicle is now off if we try and stuff everything into the back of the car. We'll be driving one of those uh, old gassers from the 70s. Right, you're up in the air, or it'd be like a like an old Porsche. You back off the throttle in a corner, and suddenly you're not going forwards anymore. Or yeah. you're backing in. <laughs> Where does the heating come from? Since you've we, you lose the radiator, and the heating is an electric, just like a ceramic heater that you would plug into your 12 volt supply. Okay, we basically have one of those that sits in the heater box, electric space heater. Yeah, and they're not the the ones for the series are only about I would say maybe four and a half by five inches and a maybe three quarters of an inch thick. It's enough to heat heated. up the the cabin. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. wow. Okay. You have instant heat. You don't have yeah. to wait now for the trucks to warm That's up. The size of a heater core, and the yeah. heater yeah. core is what's putting all the heat into your into your exactly vehicles. exactly. And, and there's it's instant heat too. How does that impact range? That's working off the 12 volt battery system, so it's a separate system. Yeah. So when you plug in your car to charge your main batteries, you're also charging your 12 volt system. So it's nice to convert some of the cars to LEDs if people want or, or that sort of stuff. Any sort of conversion where you can go to a, a light emitting diode is going to increase your 12-volt battery range for sure. What about yeah. AC? We haven't got to AC yet in a series. You take the top down, take the roof off, open the doors, drop the windshield. Open the uh, vents. you got to open the vents. Open the vents. It yeah. comes with built-in mm. AC depending on how much rust there is on it too, right? <laughs> I just, imagine I, the demand for AC in British Columbia is not all that high anyway. You know what? It's mainly in the 110s that people want AC, but we're finding more and more people now are leaning towards the factor of taking the roofs off and putting convertible tops on most of these trucks. So AC isn't that, isn't that big a factor. Now on the Defenders, are you, I assume you probably are since you're running the whole Tesla, the Model X transfer case and everything. So you've got regen braking and all of that on that system? Yes. Nice. Yeah, and that's still being controlled by an Orion system. I know there's people that are doing leaf conversions and they're basically buying a Leaf car and then stuff and everything from the car into the Defender. But I'm not sure how they interface with controlling the batteries properly because you can't see with the Orion system that we use, we can see every battery, every temperature, every resistance that's going through the wires. If there's one battery that's starting to fail more than another and that sort of stuff. When you get into the Leaf system and you're just unplugging it from a car and putting it in another vehicle... You can't access that information for how those ones are working. But I know there are some people doing that, right? How long does a conversion typically take now? Right now, we're four to six weeks. Yeah. So once the vehicle comes up here, once the vehicle shows up here, we get to it straight away and we try and get it out in four weeks. Depending on some of the requests of the customers, it might be six weeks if they want different seats and steering wheels and that sort of stuff. Now we're even doing the, I think it's Brit Parts now offering the Brembo braking systems for the Defenders, which are really cool. They're expensive, but the car now stops on a dime. 
which is helpful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, you, but you'd also be surprised at the weight. The series trucks are 300 pounds lighter with the electric conversion than they were with the motor. Oh, interesting. Okay. We're moving the whole boat anchor. We have to weigh them before the conversion is done. We have to weigh them after the conversion is done. And we have to be under the gross vehicle weight of the truck because it won't pass the inspection if it's not. What about the 110s? The 110s are pretty even. Okay. It might be a little bit more, but it's still under the gross vehicle weight of the truck. But still, to be getting a 300-mile range out of an electric 110, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Even the 55, like, I could drive the entire length of Vermont. That's only 130 miles or so. Depending on how much heat you were using. Yeah, but yeah, the, heat, the heat's the 12-volt battery. It just depends on which mountains I drive over. Yeah, or there you go. <laughs> Yeah, the big question is when you go to the main winter romp and can survive the cold. Uh, if you were a real diehard, I guess you could put a diesel-fired furnace in it, right? So. That's true. That's true. Yeah, nice little backup system. <laughs> As you're driving along in an electric car, you got diesel fumes coming out from your yeah. heater. What's going on? Just at that rate, just tow a trailer behind you with a diesel genset, then you have infinite range. Well, that's funny. That's what I say. I can't believe how many companies with diesel generators go and charging up electric cars on the side of the road. Yeah, that's the that's the emergency <laughs> yeah. backup, isn't it? Send a diesel generator and like that's part of the interim solution until you get the full infrastructure built up. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you can uh, and have the technology also. Yeah. Another reason why I say electric vehicles are zero are not zero emission; they're just remote emission. That brings me back to the original statement that it's not necessarily for. The environment is not necessarily for the fact that now it's an electric vehicle. It's trying to get people to drive them more, trying to get more of these vehicles on the road and trying to get new new Land Rover enthusiasts brought into the mix to keep these cars going and hopefully bring some cars that have been neglected for years back into the, the service realm and, and back on the road. Also, that you're doing the conversions because a lot of, not enough places are doing conversions because as you've already found, even with the series, just a couple of years, there's a whole new set of technology that makes it easier to drop in and you can take something out and put in something else, whether it's yeah. the original series parts and hand them off or yeah, the tech is changing very rapidly. Else. I wish they did more people were doing the conversions because it just is, that's the greener part. If anything, and, and, and now Tesla has Tesla's come out with six, 6.4 watt hour batteries. So they're the newer ones that get you even more range, pretty well the same size. So we can slide out the original batteries and put in these 6.4 watt hour ones. And now you've got 10% to 20% more range and nothing else has changed in the truck. Is it terribly difficult to swap out batteries down the road as the technology increases or something happens to the battery? No, it's a matter of pulling the box out of the front, separating it, pulling the batteries out, changing them and putting it back. Mm -hmm. But then you've got to be able to reprogram the system to the new batteries, the new resistance within the batteries, the new heat temperatures that they run. And that's where the system we're using comes in, where it's user-friendly. If you were to change the battery on a Nissan Leaf kit, if you just put it in, I don't know how you would reset the system. You may have to go to a dealership and ask a dealership to do it or something. So this is keeping you out of having to go to a Tesla dealer or keep you out of going to a Leaf dealer, I honestly don't think would even want to see you, right? Yeah. Like being an LR3 owner, you need to have your gap tool. Yeah, you know <laughs> what? And and be funny you say that. I have AutoLogic. I have Land Rover SDD, which is now uh, a topics-driven computer. And I have a gap two tool that sits in the toolbox. 
mm-hmm. just in case one of the main ones doesn't work. It's there as a backup, right? Are you considering other vehicles, not just Defenders and Series for conversion? We will be down the road. The problem you run into is newer cars like the LR3, for example, is so sophisticated. You've now got to get through ignition systems. You've got to get through ABS systems. You've got air suspension systems. There's so many different things to tie into, and they're all running fiber optics. So like your LR3, the stereo run fiber optics, the all-terrain control system runs fiber optics, the transfer case computer. And when something goes down, then the whole system stops working. So you might find that you lose traction control, you lose hill descent control, you you lose everything, but it's an air suspension issue that's caused all those issues. And trying to tie into that system is something we're working on, but it's definitely going to take a bit of time. But you could do an electric D1, for instance, since (laughs) you like those. Yeah, you could do that. I'm just going to find one. I had a guy in here the other day that had a 95 Disco 1 brought to me, a five-speed SD. So there you go. There's your candidate. So cloth, no no sunroofs. It had the best of all the worlds. Just the fact that you could put your foot through the plat passenger floor was a big issue. And all the wheel wheel arches on the passenger rear doors were rotted out and everything else. It had arches? They, they still existed? Oh. Yeah, and he was selling it to this. He was trying to sell it to this gentleman for $17,000 Canadian. Jeez. Oh. Yeah. That, that's a $500 parts truck. Yeah. In my I had a lady buy a 2003 Disco 2. And she paid the guy $14,500 about a month ago. Yikes. Wow. wow. And it had head gasket issues when I did the inspection. Oh. Yeah, so just don't do I that. Did. Yeah, I would think Range Rover Classics would also be a good op- option for conversion. Have you looked at those? Classics are good. The, big, the biggest issue with a classic is trying to restore a classic nowadays is really hard. Yeah. Arts are getting Arts. harder and harder to find. Yeah. If somebody yeah. brought me a classic that was absolutely perfect, I would consider it. But if somebody brings me a classic and says, you know what, it's been in a barn for five years, I want you to convert it to electric and fix everything else. <laughs> I don't know if I could do it because I can't even find taillights. I couldn't find a wiper switch. There's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't be able to find. Plus the heating system, it's atrocious. So trying to fix the heating system on a series, I don't even know how I would get parts for it or anything. What about Jaguars and other older British vehicles? I think that's something to think about down the road. For sure, but there's such a demand on the Defenders and the Series trucks right now. I think that's where it's going to stay for the better part. We were talking to another gentleman in Toronto who specializes in Land Rovers, and he was telling me he he dropped a car off at a shop, what was it, two and a half years ago, to have an electric conversion done, and he's still waiting to get it back. Ouch, ouch. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why we're focusing on somebody brings us a truck, you drop it off. We decide we, we first have to have a look and make sure the truck can handle an electric conversion. What things would make it not be convertible? Uh, people think they've got an amazing truck and it shows up on a hoist and the frame's rotten, the cross members are all buckled or... Riggers are gone. Yeah, we're, we can't do it. We can't do a conversion where we're going to give you 300 horsepower in a Defender 110 if it's got a rotten frame. It's going to snap <laughs> soon as you give it any uh, acceleration. <laughs> yeah, it'll do yeah, one yeah. wheelie and then it's done. <laughs> Yeah, so we're very picky about the cars we do. 90% of them are in great condition, and we can help them bring them back to life. But there's definitely some where you have to turn them away. Just actually, I had a thought about older older vehicles that have power takeoff, PTO. Does that, because that comes out of the transmission, right? 
And would that because still transfer case. transfer case? So is that is not being replaced in a conversion, correct? No, it's staying on the series vehicles. Yeah. So you could yeah. still then use your PTO capabilities. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I don't know how much of a field you'd plow with a PTO that's run off electric, but there's a guy here <laughs> in Pennsylvania that has put a blender on his PTO on his series. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to make sure you can still use the blender. That's the, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't think I've seen a winch that works yet off a PTO on a series. Mm-hmm. It would be really cool to see one day. Hmm. Yes. Then there's Ike with his PTO driven ice cream churn. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. What about four controls? Just that came to mind too. That it seems like Roland Rover, I guess, because they have enough space in them. Is that what makes them better for conversion? You know what? It's commonality. Okay. There's so many series and there's so many defenders. Once you spend all the R&D designing a kit for a 110, you can split up that R&D amongst your next 50 conversions and recover the cost of it. But if you're going to get into a Ford Control, I think there's maybe four of them in, in BC. So now you spend so right. much time figuring out, building it, you're going to lose your shirt on it because you've got to make it to the point where you don't have to retire on it, but it's definitely got to be something where you don't go backwards. Play devil's advocate and suggest freelanders. There's probably got to be a lot out there with non-running motors that could be replaced. Well you done, sir. Yes. You know what? I don't think you could find an electric motor strong enough to turn that four-wheel drive system. If you took well, the trans, then that and that's the downfall of the freelander. And it's not the engine that was the problem. It's the four-wheel drive system. If you take an engine out of it and you actually put the car in neutral, it takes a good amount of people to push that Freelander. We push them in and out of the shop here, and it takes as many guys as I can get to push them. And it's because this, the four-wheel drive system is so tight, and it's it's just unbelievable how much power it takes to move it, and that's the downside of, of the engine. Wow. Yeah, it's a front-wheel drive transmission that they put a sideways gear in it to pull power out of, and then they they just thought, well, let's just put a viscous coupling in the middle, and that'll take care of the all-wheel drive stuff. Uh, it's, I've never found a tougher car to push, and it's so small. We push F-350s and Lincoln Continentals in easier than we can push a freeload. So if you rip the engine and the transmission out of it and put in an electric motor and, and a gearbox pointed the correct direction, and then you drove... From there, that would work. So just developing a new Freelander. (laughs) Just take a Freelander and drop it on a series truck chassis, and there you go. Yeah, you know what? You could most probably use a Tesla motor with a battery and put it in sideways and drive the front wheels from it. But we've had all sorts. I've had Volkswagen Rabbits through here that guys have done themselves. I've had Bentley Continentals. We've had a guy do a Pantera. And he took the 351 out of it and put an electric motor in it. Is it any more reliable doing it that way? I don't know. Other than seeing them here for their inspections, I've never seen them again. seems like everything people do to Panteras does not improve the uh, lack of reliability on those things. You know what? That's what I, I worked on those for years. And there's only two color wires in the car and it's black and yellow. And I remember, I'll never forget trying to find a, an electrical problem in the car, and it wasn't until the smoke came out that I found it. That's a that's an Italian commonality there. A lot of Italian cars, they're all black wires with these little painted-on markings that rub off. And then, so you basically, all the wires in the truck are, in the car are black. You've mentioned you, Defenders and Series trucks. Do you, would you go back to a Series 1 and do an electric conversion there? Are you capable of that? I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. We had a, a Series 1 pickup truck through here that had beautiful patina and it was just beaten. It was just perfect. And I had no idea that he sold it. 
that's something I think I would have bought and put an electric motor in. It would have been really cool. So there's a 51 for sale here and every door panel and every body panel is a different color, but he's just asking a little bit too much for it. We'll see. Maybe we can get our hands on one. Where can folks find you if they're interested in an electric conversion or they're in the British Columbia? They probably already know about you, but what are those of us who do not? The company is called Hesp Originals and we've just released a website, hesporiginals.com. We have customers now that are coming up from the U.S. Shipping from the U.S. is quite easy to Canada. Oh, yeah. Is it? Okay. Return. Yep. And you guys have got to keep in mind, you save 36% on the exchange rate. Oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. Surprised how many people are California bound that want to get it done or even in even on the East Coast. We're here and we're ready to do the conversions. And hopefully we'll have, instead of just producing ones that we're selling for customers or giving to customers that they're paying us to do it, we're hopefully can get enough money together and we'll produce our own and then we'll start traveling around and showing everybody them. Oh, that'd be wonderful. We'll keep a lookout for that as you, as you yeah. do that. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast and talking to us today. We do appreciate well, thank it. Thank you very much for having us. It was uh, wonderful to meet you guys and hopefully we'll uh, see you at one of the shows if you get out to work. Likewise. We hope you enjoyed show number 131 for February of 2024. We took a standard uh, podcast and we just cut a little bit of the middle out and we extended it. No. No? No? Okay. All right. Let's move on. Thanks to our guests this month, Alistair Hesp and Jerry Starr of Hesp Automotive and now of Hesp Originals for coming on the program, talking to us this month. If you need maybe new Defender parts, maybe you were at a certain off-road activity and maybe you are looking for parts to repair your vehicle because a tree was nice enough to stop your vehicle going down a hill. HESP might have some of those parts for you. If you didn't listen, go back and listen to that to that interview. And also we made another connection with the with an elusive British Columbia Land Rover Club. And also thanks to the One True Packers continued production for support. And also Dixon, Harold and Morgan for helping out with the program once again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me as always. I need to get my rover fixed somehow right now with mine still just torn apart and sitting there. The first thing to getting it fixed is talking about it. Oh, yes. For years, you're Definitely. in denial and wouldn't even mention it. <laughs> yes. If only there were a website where one could go <laughs> to find all the parts. That's how I actually got started on not working on my Land Rover anymore, was working on the website. Oh, yeah, and now you're not I was doing like, oh, either. I need to build the website to find all the parts. And then I was like, this is taking all my time away from working on the Land Rover. And now you're doing neither. Uh, yeah, now I'm doing the podcast. Ah, okay. Blame it on the podcast. <laughs> no, it's all me. It's all me. I take full credit for that. Again, the first step to getting the Rover back on the road is talking about it. Good on you. We post a new podcast at the end of every month. Our website, centersteer.com, has all our shows that you can listen to, the old shows, the new shows, and the show notes, which have links to the stories we discussed in today's podcast, like getting the OVLR newsletter, if you so wish to do that. You can directly support the podcast at patreon.com slash centersteer. You can buy a t-shirt, a sticker, or even buy us a tee. Visit our website for all those details. And if you have an idea for a guest, we're open to it. Send us the details and contact information if you have it. Thank you for listening. And we'd love to hear from you, what you're up to in your Land Rover, or if you happen to see a tow truck or maybe some Freelanders on the road, we'll happen to hear about those too.
On behalf of our entire North American-based crew here at the Sitter Steer Podcast, I'd like to thank you for listening today. We know you have a choice when it comes to your podcast content, and we do appreciate your choosing us. Please take a moment to look around you for any personal items you might be leaving behind. For instance, a copy of Dixon's newsletter that you might have had with you. Please check the overhead bins and remember that some items may have shifted during the show. Watch your step on the way out, and you may now resume your important things. Ah, okay. Blame it on the podcast.